listen, if you're new here today and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Will and I serve as one of the elders and pastors here at our church. And uh, this morning we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes and we are in part three, week three of our series. And for those of you who have been following along, uh, you know that we started week one by asking and answering the who question. We were looking at verse one and we were asking and answering the who question. And then last week, for week two, we, we came back together and we were asking and answering the why question, the why question. And we were in verse two and three of the book. But this morning, we are now stepping into what commentators refer to as the main body or the main argument of the book of Ecclesiastes. And essentially what Solomon is going to do for the rest of the book is he's going to provide an answer, uh, well, several answers and several responses to the question that we looked at last week. We looked at verse three, and in verse three, Solomon asked the question, he says, what does man gain from all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And we said that the answer to verse three, that 30,000 foot question, is the 30,000 foot answer, which is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That is the 30,000 foot answer. But what he's going to do now for the rest of the book is he's going to go from 30,000 feet down to the ground level, and he's going to show us how each one of the pursuits, each one of the idols that he was tempted to worship that were smaller than Jesus, left him empty, left him meaningless and purposeless. So, so what he's going to do now is he's going to continue answering that question, but for the rest of the book until chapter 12, he's going to show you all the different roads that he took, all the different counterfeit gods that he pursued in order to find purpose and meaning. And this morning, he's going to look at the first one. He's going to unpack the first thing that he pursued apart from God and under the sun, which is the pursuit of human progress. He's going to be addressing and exposing the pursuit, the idol of human progress, the idol of human advancement and human achievement. And what he's going to show us, like he's going to show us throughout the entirety of this series and this book, is that human, human progress and human advancement cannot save us and also cannot satisfy us. So in order to address this first idol, this first counterfeit God of human progress and human advancement, we are going to be looking at Ecclesiastes 1, and we're going to go from verse 3 all the way to verse 11. So Ecclesiastes 1, verse 3, all the way through Ecclesiastes 1, verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes. Again, Ecclesiastes is after the book of Proverbs, and we are going to be in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through verse 11. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Solomon writes, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down, and hastens, everyone say hastens, to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. 
To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. Everyone say weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new. Everyone say new. Under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come before you today in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, God, we thank you for the baptism that we were able to celebrate. We thank you, Lord, for how you are working in and through this body. And Lord, help us to be reminded daily and weekly that the only reason why stories like that exist is because of your power, is because of your word, is because of your work. It's nothing that we're doing, it's you who does the work. God, we are grateful for the blessing of being able to be a part of this body. We're, we're grateful, Lord, for the opportunity that you are giving us to be here again today. And Lord, I pray um, because of the, the, the seriousness of this text, God, I pray that you would help me to get out of the way. And I pray in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord Jesus, we need you more than we'll ever know. Remind us of that today, even as we look at this text. Convict, comfort, confront, do whatever needs to happen. We ask and we beg it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. All right, so like I already mentioned, uh, this morning we are looking at the first pursuits, the, the first idol that Solomon pursues. And that idol, that pursuit, is the idol of human progress, the idol of human achievement and human advancement. And this morning, what we're going to see is that there are three lessons that we learn, three truths that we learn about this pursuit of progress that humanity is infatuated with. The first truth that we will learn this morning is we will learn about the idol of progress. Everyone say idol. The idol of progress. Here's the thing about this concept this topic of human progress and human achievement. I would argue that in light of scripture, this is an idol that every generation has had since the book of Genesis. And we're gonna look at that here in a, little bit, in a little bit. Every generation, every culture has been fascinated with this idea of human progress and human achievement and advancement. But I would argue that if there's ever been a culture and there's ever been a generation that is, this is the, the idol of idols, this is the counterfeit gods of counterfeit gods, is our culture, the, the, the American Western culture that we are all a part of. Now, the reason why I can say that pretty confidently is one, because I have two eyes, but two, because this summer I had an opportunity uh, to go to Peru with my family. And one of the things that was really cool about being in another country is that when you're in another country in another culture, you get to see what their counterfeit gods are. You get to see what their idols are. And whenever I'm in a different place, I like asking questions to kind of get a pulse of what the idols of that culture is. And one of the guys that was driving us around grew up there in Pocopa, Peru. 
And he said that one of the idols in Peru is the idol of education. He said, as a matter of fact, the first university in Latin America was in Lima, Peru. And ever since then, it's always been this idol, this thing that they worship, this, this, this concept of education. It's the way that they perceive uh, if, you, if you're educated, then you are better than, uh, than others. So they idolize education. He said that another thing that they idolize there is essentially collectivism, the, the, the worship of the group over the individual. In the West, we are an individualistic culture, and so we worship the individual more than the group. But in a place like Peru, they worship the group more than the individual. But one of the things that stood out to me while we were in Peru was the absence of this idol, this idol of human progress and advancement. It was there to a degree, but it wasn't as prominent as it is in our day and in our culture. And the reason for it, actually, he told me, he said, is because Peru is always about five to 10 years of whatever, wherever we are uh, technologically. So whatever technology we're, you know, now discovering, they will get it in five to 10 years. And so I think part of the reason why it doesn't define them as much as it defines us is because for them, they know that they aren't on the cutting edge of progress and advancement. So they're okay and content with not having that be an idol. But when it comes to countries like the US and Russia and China and certain countries in Europe, we are infatuated with this pursuit of human progress and human advancement. And as a matter of fact, a couple of weeks ago, I came across this podcast, and, and the podcast was between two guys from, they were both British, and, and they were talking about the dangers of artificial intelligence. And one of the guys, who the one being interviewed, he had a lot of experience in it, and he had been in several different companies that many of us have heard of, and he's been at the forefront of this technology, of these breakthroughs in artificial intelligence. And he spends like 15, 20 minutes in the podcast explaining how dangerous artificial intelligence actually is. So the guy interviewing him goes, well, if it's as dangerous as you say it is, then why do you keep pursuing it? Why do we keep going down this path? And his answer was fascinating. He said, the reason why we have to keep going down this path is because if we don't, someone else will. And it was like the ultimate carrot on a stick moment that we're doing it because what else will we do? If we don't do it, someone else will do it. And that is the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Human progress, human achievement, human advancement, the fact that Solomon is going to call that out, he's going after one of the greatest and most prominent idols in our cultural moment. Now here's the thing about human progress and advancement though. I think so often when we think about progress, we only think of technology. We think of, you know, cutting edge breakthroughs that, you know, are happening over in Silicon, in Silicon Valley. But the reality is, is that progress can look different from person to person. I would argue that every single person in this room worships this idea of progress more than we think because there are different types of progress. So for example, there are some in the room who they are they, their tendency is to pursue technological progress. And so they watch every Apple keynote. And every time Tesla comes out with a new product, they're here for it, live streaming it, right? They're excited about iPhone 27, right? Every time their new video, new video game comes up, it's the same as the one from last year, but you know, they're using bigger words now, so it's different. 
right? So there's people who, that's the pursuit. Uh, that's the idol that they have, the technological progress. But for some of us, it's racial progress. For some of us, it's political progress. For some of us, it might be, maybe you're in the medical field, it's medical progress. Or maybe someone in your family has a, a, a condition and so you're always doing research on that thing. When are they gonna find the breakthrough and the answer for that? For some of us, it, it's religious progress. Not redemptive progress, religious progress. It's you know, the whole new year, uh, new me, which is not a thing. It's the same you, just a different date, right? The date's different, the person's the same. But this year, I'm gonna grow in purity. I'm gonna grow in morality. I'm gonna grow in righteousness, right? There's religious progress. And then there's the, the good old faithful, which is just personal progress, right? You might not care what's happening in the world. You might never read the news, but there is the idol of personal progress. There's this desire for us to go further than our parents did, and we want our kids to go further than we did. And, and, and the reality is, is that regardless of what your cup of tea is, every single one of us worships this concept of progress in some way, shape, or form. We said last week, though, that the word there, Havel, is the word for breath or the word for vapor. We said that Havel is like a bubble that, that looks shiny and, and, and really attractive, right? And you want that, you want to go grab it. And then when you go to go grab it, it catches your attention. When you go to go grab it, it pops. And, and when I think about things under the sun that are Havel, I can't think of anything that's closer to the top of the list than human advancement and human progress. And, and I wanna, what I want to do here as we look at this concept of human advancement and, and progress is I want to show you that this has been an issue since the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, when Satan shows up in the garden and he's talking to Adam and Eve, specifically to Eve, and he's trying to convince her to eat from this, from this tree that she's not supposed to eat from, the, the, the false gospel that he sells her on is the false gospel of human advancement of human achievement, of human progress. He says, if you eat of this tree, you will be like God. It's not enough to be with God. No, no, you must be like God. That, that's what he offers her in the garden. That is the lie that she falls into. That is the false gospel that she believes in the garden. But then you fast forward from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, and for those of you who were here last week, you know that I quoted Dr. David Gibson where he talks about the fact that to this day, every single human is impacted and affected by the, the pride that, that permeated the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. That, that pride, that desire to not be with God, but to be like God is in each and every one of our hearts. And then in that quote, he compared it to the Tower of Babel. He said the, 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 the clearest example of this in Scripture is the Tower of Babel. If you think about it, it's at least written in Scripture. It's the first time humanity turns to man-made technology to try to deliver them. They turn to man-made technology, human progress, to try to save their souls and satisfy their souls. And so I mentioned it a little bit last week, but as I was studying this week, I'm like, I want to go back and, and take a closer look at Genesis 11. Because Genesis 11 does a very good job of revealing to us the idol of human progress and the idol of human achievement. So in Genesis 11, here's what it says. It says, now the whole earth had one language 
and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, that's the direction that they've been heading since they got kicked out of the garden. They, go, they, they were sent east of Eden, right? It says they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Everyone say settled. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar, for, for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is my favorite part of the passage. That, that, that humanity, all of humanity, this isn't just like one country, all of humanity is in one place and they're giving all their effort to be like God, to get to heaven uh, without God. And, and all the work that they put into, into it, it says that it was so puny what they were doing that God had to come down. He came down for what? To see the city and the tower. He had to come down because it was so small. So the Lord comes down to see, but something that I mentioned last week that I want to spend some time unpacking here, and in all the different words that I highlighted connected to these things, I mentioned a little bit earlier that progress can look different from person to person. Every person uh, uh, worships this idea of human progress uh, in some way and to some degree. But since it looks different from person to person and from individual to individual, sometimes it's harder to detect it in our own lives than it is to detect it in the lives of others. But what's interesting is if it's already not complex enough or unique enough, our idol structures are not unique enough, there's a whole nother layer to it. Not only are there all these surface idols that we are tempted to idolize, right? Racial progress, political progress, technological progress, religious progress, there's all these options at the surface level. Underneath the surface, there's also three options that we can choose from. And, and what we find in Genesis chapter 11 is that when humanity first takes a stab at technology, first takes a stab at human progress and advancement, they're motivated by three root idols. And these are the same three root idols that still motivate us. So this isn't like a, you can opt out. This is an all skate, all right? Every single one of us worships progress in some way. And every single one of us is going to progress for one of these three reasons. So, so the first one is satisfaction. That, that one of the reasons why they turn to human progress and achievement, one of the reasons why they turn to uh, this, this technology is because of satisfaction, because it says in the text that they settled. That instead of obeying what God said in, with the, great, uh, the creation mandate, which is to go be fruitful and multiply, to spread out, and have dominion over creation. It says that instead of doing what God said, they settled. And why did they settle? Why did they settle? Because they did not want to be dispersed. That is what the satisfaction person does. They settled, they wanted peace, but not peace that comes from God. They wanted peace apart from God. And, and, and essentially they settled because of their comfort. So here's the thing. One of the reasons why we are prone to turn to and look to human progress is because we are finding our satisfaction in that thing, whatever that type of progress is. 
For some of us, we go to it, we, we scroll Instagram endlessly, and we click next episode on Netflix endlessly, and we watch, uh, there's people here who are struggling with pornography, we watch all the pornography under the sun, because we feel that this, that is going to satisfy us. We go to it for satisfaction. Some people turn to human progress, human achievement, human advancement for satisfaction, for, for comfort. Instead of finding it in the Lord, they find it horizontally in progress. The, the other type of person, though, is the person who turns to progress, not because of satisfaction, but because of security. So if this person struggles with dissatisfaction, this person struggles with insecurity. This is the person that when I put my notes up a little bit earlier and I didn't put my three points up at the same time, got bothered. Because <laughs> they want to know what's coming up. They don't want to get surprised. Right? That's the security person. They struggle with insecurity. They want control. They want power. They don't want God's will. They want their will. They don't want God's plan. They want their plan. And what's interesting is, is when you look at the text that I just read, there's a couple things that indicate to us that these people were also being motivated by security. The first phrase is the phrase, let us, let us. It says it twice, that that someone who struggles with security says, let me do it because nobody can do it like me. I'll handle it. I'll take care of it. I want the control. I want the power. But the other indicator that they were finding their security in it is that it says that they wanted to build a tower that reached the heavens. And we talked about this a little last week, but that one commentator I came across mentioned that these are people who literally just a few decades earlier got through a, well, they didn't get through, their parents died in it, right? The people that came before them died in it. These are people who in their recent memory had a global flood that took everything out. So part of the reason why they want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens is so just in case there's another flood, we don't die. So you see that one of the things that was motivating them was insecurity. They were finding their security in the technology and in the progress. And for some people, the reason why we turn to progress, whatever that type of progress that you turn to is, is because we are finding our security in it. And that's why, church, we have to be careful when we judge one another on our idols. Because every single one of us has it. So, so you might judge the person who wants political progress, but then you're judging, you want physical progress. You're looking for the new fad diet, that's, the new supplement that's going to make you skinny finally. Right? That, that's, that's how it is. It's easy for us to see the, the log in someone else's eye, and then we don't see, yeah, we don't see, we see the speck in their eye, we don't see the log in our own eye. That's one of the reasons why we turn to progress. And then the third reason, according to the text, is not just dissatisfaction and insecurity, but insignificance. They were looking for approval. They were looking for applause. They wanted to take the credit, and they were doing it not for God's glory, but for their glory. And we know that because it says, let us build this for our name. Let's make a name for our not, not for God's name, but for our name, for our glory. And this is the third reason why we turn to this idol of progress, because we are looking for significance. If I can just, you know, uh, have uh, vocational progress, if I can just get another raise, I will finally be acceptable. If I can just lose five more pounds, I will finally be beautiful. 
if we can just get the right president in place, we will finally be at peace. Does that make sense? Like it's, it's, this, it's, 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 it's so insidious. So this idol of progress affects every single one of us. It looks different from person to person, but these are the reasons why we are tempted to worship progress. And the thing about progress, and we're going to see it, is that progress is a great gift. It is a terrible God. Because these things should not be found in progress. They should be found in a person. Amen? We see them trying to be not with God, but like God. Ever since Genesis 3, humanity has been trying to get back into Eden. We're going to build the highest tower to get us back over the sun. It just, this, this, this temptation, this struggle has always been one for every generation and every culture that's existed. But I would argue, like I said at the beginning, that this culture that we're in, this idol, is, is at the top of our list. This idol of human ingenuity and progress and achievement and advancement. And I came across this quote by Dr. Trevin Wax, and he actually explains why it's such a, if the fire was already going, why post-enlightenment, there's been a ton of gasoline poured on it. Here's what he says about this idea of human progress, this myth. He says, it stems from an ideology rooted in the enlightenment, understanding that as human knowledge expands, the world will be increasingly marked by justice and fairness, peace and prosperity which we have more knowledge than we ever have, and none of these things are true of our day. Then he says, these enlightened people, what they say is we have shed the silly superstitions and mindless dogmas of the past as we move towards a science-based utopian state of individual freedom from anyone else's moral constraints. Ever since the Enlightenment period, we have been convinced that the answer ain't back there, it's up there. One more breakthrough, one more technology, one more sky rise. That is the myth of our day. Now, Tim Shaley says this. It, he, he talks about technology in particular, but I feel like we can put human progress in that but he's talking about technology in this article. And I, this is why I think technology is so insidious and why we are so tempted to idolize it and find our significance, our security, and our satisfaction in it. He says, technology certainly delivers on its promise, allowing us to live longer and cleaner and healthier and more comfortable lives. But because it is so effective in meeting our needs, it can easily begin to replace the one true God. Technology becomes an idol, get this, when we start to believe that humanity's hope, humanity's future will be found in more and better technology. It becomes an idol when we place greater hope in technology than in God. And when we measure human progress, not by the state of our hearts, internally, but by new innovations and in technology, externally. And then he ends by saying this, we can make an idol of technology as we, as we flip through the weekly advertisements looking for something, anything that will make our lives just a little better, a little bit better and fill the void in our hearts. 
That is the idol of progress. Now that we've looked at the idol of progress, the, the next truth that I believe we learn from this passage is we learn about the lack of progress. Everyone say lack. The lack of progress. Here's the thing. Even though I just spent the first point talking to you about the fact that we idolize human progress, that it is one of the, 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 the primary pursuits of our culture, even though we idolize progress, that doesn't mean we ever actually achieve it. Just because we desperately want it, it doesn't mean that we ever actually get there. And, and, and here's why, here's why. We said last week that uh, the, the purpose of the book is the purpose of life. And we said that the purpose of life is God. That our purpose is not found under the sun horizontally. It is found over the sun vertically. And God is the one who gives us purpose. Solomon says as much when he says uh, in Ecclesiastes 12 that this is the end of the matter. This is the whole duty of man to fear God and to keep his commandments. Right? We said that is the purpose of life. Here's how last week's message connects with, connects with this week's message. If you don't have the right purpose, you won't make the right progress. Your purpose is directly attached to your progress. Your why determines your where. Your duty, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, your duty determines your destination. And one of the things that we have fallen into in the, the, the third culture that we live in is that we, we treat progress the same way we treat truth. People will say, well, there's no such thing as truth. I have my truth. You have your truth. There's no such thing as objective truth. There's only subjective truth, right? Well, the problem with that is that when you just start, you know, choosing your own adventure and you decide this is what my purpose is and this is what my truth is, well, when you choose a purpose, that purpose will lead to a certain type of progress. But that might not be progress the way the Bible defines progress. It might be regressing, not progressing. So just because people call something true doesn't mean it is true. And just because people call something progress doesn't mean it's actually progress. Does that make sense? Because your purpose determines your progress. Your why determines your where. And what I want you to see, C.S. Lewis, this was literally written decades ago. You would think he wrote it two minutes ago. Here's what he said about this idea of progress. He says, progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, get this, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. I mean, our culture loves the word progressive. We're going to talk about that more next week. But part of the, the myth that the, the, the progressive gospel preaches is that the answer is always up there, wherever there is. But the problem is if we don't agree on what truth is and we don't agree on what purpose is, then we can't agree on what progress is either. So what, what Lewis is arguing, and again, he wrote this decades ago, 
because it was already happening back there because there's nothing new under the sun. What he's arguing is that the most progressive person is the person who's actually making progress towards the thing that God says is progress. We don't get to define or decide our purpose. We don't get to decide or define our progress. God tells us what our purpose is, and God also tells us what progress is. And the most progressive person is the person that follows God's purpose. Amen? Here's what Trevin Wax says about this, this, high, this whole idea of progress. He says, the problem, of course, is that not all progress is equal. A marriage can grow weaker over time, and the couple progress toward the divorce court. The aging process of the body leads, to, uh, leads progressively to breakdown, uh, leads progressively to breakdown. Charting a society's progress can reveal areas of societal decay. Is the progressive state of something a sign of evolution or de-evolution? This question seldom gets raised. So our culture, again, we talked about this last week. The culture loves the concept of profit, yet never asks, what is my profit for my life? What is the gain? What is the bottom line for my life? So I would argue that our culture actually doesn't think about profit enough. It's not that we think about it too much. It's that we actually don't think about it enough. Because if you thought about it more, you would realize that what really matters is what is the profit for my life? The same thing is true of progress. Our culture loves the idea of progress. We're talking about it every chance we get. But I think that we actually don't talk about it enough. We actually aren't actually getting to what the Bible says progress is. Because he argues that this question of what true progress is seldom gets raised. And then he says this, unless we settle on an ideal, an objective truth, an aspirational vision of some sort, we are unable to define something as progress or regress. So the reason why there is such a lack of progress in our cultural moment, in our day, is because purpose and progress will always be connected. Your purpose will always determine your progress. Your why will always determine your where. The reality is, though, is that humanity desperately wants to get back to Eden, like I said earlier. Humanity wants heaven on earth. What, huma what humanity wants, and I, I learned this this week, and, and I had never thought of it before, but what humanity wants more than anything else is utopia. Now, me being the nerd that I am, I went to go figure out where the word utopia comes from. That word, get this, was first used by a guy named Thomas More back in 1516 in a book that he wrote called Utopia, okay? Now, what's so interesting about that book is that he wrote the book during this time of political chaos and divisiveness in Europe. This is the early 1500s. And in the book, he talks about this make-believe island called Utopia and how this island is everything's perfect. Everyone is equal. The government and all its branches uh, work in cohesion. Everything is awesome. It's the perfect place, right? But here's what people don't, don't realize. Ever since that moment, we have been using that word Utopia. And our culture is fascinated with this idea of bringing utopia here on earth, bringing heaven here on earth. But if you go back and actually read what his intentions were with the book, 
he used the word utopia as a pun because the word utopia in Greek, the first part of it is you, which means no, and topos means place. So literally the word utopia is the word, the phrase no place. Nowhere. It doesn't exist. He wrote the whole thing as a pun to show that with all the chaos that was going on in Europe in the early 1500s, by the way, it's no different today. There is no such thing as utopia. That's why he wrote the book. You equals no, topos equals place. No place, nowhere, it doesn't exist. But we are so idolatrous that we've taken this word that was meant to be a pun and we have made it our purpose, our destination, our goal. That is, in many ways, the lie that Satan has sold to humanity. The same lie that he sold Adam and Eve on, you will be like God. Why be, why be with God when you can be like God is the same lie that we are still believing today. We believe that we can have utopia here on earth. The problem is, because we don't know our histories very well, we're going to talk about that here in a second. Utopia does not exist. It is a make-believe place. So what, here's what Solomon's going to do to show us this lack of progress. What he's going to do is he's going to reveal and expose the lack of progress by looking at two things. He's going to begin by looking at creation in verses 4, and seven, four through 7. So he's going to show us the lack of progress by looking at creation, right, verses 4 through 7. And then he's going to show us our lack of progress by looking at the creature. So he's going to look at creation externally, and then he's going to look at the creature internally in verses 8 through 11. And what he's going to argue in this section is that there are four reasons why there is absolutely no progress under the sun. The first reason he's going to give is that there are that nothing changes. The second reason he's going to give is that nothing satisfies. The third reason is that there's nothing new. And the fourth reason is that nothing is remembered. So let's look at the first reason he gives. The first reason that Solomon gives for why there is no progress, there is a lack of progress under the sun, is because nothing changes. He says in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. So here he starts talking about creation, right? The earth remains forever. And then literally in the next few verses, it feels like a, a Captain Planet uh, episode. Remember Captain Planet back in the day? The, the earth, wind, fire, yeah. So it reminded me of Captain Planet. That's a generational thing that you might not know, but that was my cartoon back in the day. So he's about to talk to, he's going to look at creation, earth and wind and water, not fire, unfortunately, because then, you know, we'd be jamming up here. But he's going to look at earth, wind, and water. And, and, and he's going to show us from creation that absolutely nothing changes. So he says, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens. Everyone say hastens. Here's what's interesting about that word hastens in Hebrew is that it's directly connected to the word toil. And it literally carries the idea of exhaustion and, and literally being labored that even the sun is exhausted from the circular and cyclical nature of our, of our day. That's how little things change, that even the sun is tired and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south 
and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea. And then he says, uh, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So, so the first argument, the first observation that he's making is that nothing changes. Nothing changes. And you've heard the phrase, if nothing changes, then nothing changes. That, that's literally what he's arguing for. He's looking at creation and he is showing, he's, he wants us to see the circular and cyclical nature of creation. And here's the thing, when you read this passage in Hebrew, he intentionally repeats verbs and nouns unnecessarily to show you, even as you read it, just how circular life actually is, just how cyclical life actually is. Here's what's so funny about this idea of things not changing. We live in a culture that confuses motion with meaning. Because I'm moving, I must have meaning. Solomon says, busyness has nothing to do with purpose. I actually feel it myself. There's times where I'll look at my work week, and if I have less meetings, I'll be like, man, what am I going to do this week? What am I here for? Half of those meetings don't even, they don't, I don't even know why I have them, to be honest, but I think I have them so that if I have somewhere to be, and if I have somewhere to be, then I must be important, right? But, but, but Solomon wants you to see that motion doesn't equal meaning. Movement doesn't equal meaning. Busyness doesn't equal purpose. That's what he's trying to show us. Think about this for a second to show you how nothing has changed. The same sun that is over us right now in the sky is the same sun that was over Adam and Eve in the garden. Think about how many generations have come and gone and no one remembers them and the sun is still here. That's what Solomon wants us to think about, that nothing changes. The, the second thing he's going to argue in order to show us that there is a lack of progress in the world is not only that nothing changes, but that nothing satisfies. Look what he says in verse eight. He says, all things are full of weariness. Everyone say weariness. The word there, weariness, it, it carries the idea of being exhausted, of being at the end of your rope, of being completely and utterly spent. He says, a man cannot utter it, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The word there, satisfied, has to do with being physically nourished. It has to do with being content. He says that one of the reasons why we know that there is a lack of purpose on earth is because nothing satisfies. Think about the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. There's never been a society that has more things to look at more things to listen to. And we go from YouTube video to YouTube video, and we go from Netflix episode to Netflix episode, and we go from movie to movie, and we go from uh, 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 Instagram reel to Instagram reel, and no one ever has put their phone down and said, you know what, I've had enough. No more looking for me. No. And then he talks about the ears. Think about how many podcasts we listen to. We have Spotify. We have Apple Music. You have every song that's ever written at your disposal. Think about how many sermons you've heard. Think about how many sermons you have access to. You would think 
that with the exposure we have to sermons, we would be the most obedient generation that's ever existed. And we're not. Because our eyes are never satisfied and our ears are never filled. Never. Even though our options are endless and boundless, we are never satisfied and we are never filled. This is why um, Dr. Uh, Mark Sayers, he's a, he's a pastor over in uh, Australia. I love his writings. And he, he says that one of the mistakes that we fall into as Christians is we think that the future of our world is like Terminator. We think it's like iRobot, right? Where like the robots take over and, 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 and enslave us, right? He said that's actually not the future of our world and of technology and of human progress. He said our future is not Blade Runner. He said our future is actually more like the Ready Player One movie. It, it, maybe you haven't seen that movie, but it's a Spielberg movie, and essentially it's everything. Society's okay, but no one wants to fix it because they're too busy playing video games. They're too busy living out their life through their avatar. They're too busy looking at life through their VR set. He says that's what the future actually is. It's not going to be the robots and artificial intelligence enslaving us. It's going to be us willingly enslaving ourselves, trying to meet this deep need of satisfaction that we have. The other reason he gives is that there is nothing new. There is nothing new. Not only does nothing change, right? Not only does nothing satisfy, but there is nothing new. He says in verse 9 and 10, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new. Everyone say nothing new. Under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is, sorry, that's the next one. So there's been already in the ages before us. We'll stop there. So, so the, the, the third reason that Solomon gives for why we have a lack of progress is because under the sun, there is absolutely nothing new. The, the word there, new, carries the idea of freshness or something that's new in essence. So there might be things that look new because we put a new coat of paint on them, like every remake that's ever been made. Like the only movies that succeed now are the ones that were already out and no one's creative enough to make a new. So then we're just going to remake it and put some new packaging on it. Right? So, so when it talks about new there, it's talking about being new in nature. Not just putting a fresh coat of paint on something, but like there's literally nothing new under the sun. And here's the thing about this idea of newness. What Solomon argues is that essentially, this is how, how it kind of my mind works, I try to illustrate things. It's almost like every generation that's ever existed is going around the same cul-de-sac. Or, well, sorry, we're in Memphis. The same cove, right? <laughs> I'm all things to all people. What can I say? So, so e every generation is going around the same cove, right? But, but because every generation is roughly around 80 years, you go around and, and, and that, that, that new generation's like, whoa, I've never seen that driveway before. Whoa, look at that mailbox. Did you see the siding on that house? No one's ever seen this before. But they have. And here's the thing about what Solomon talks about. When he brings up this idea of new, he's not talking about technology. Because someone might say, well, that's not true. I got, you know, iPhone 76. Of course there's something new. 
Look at all the breakthroughs we're doing. He's not talking about technology. What he is saying is, is that human experience, human emotion, and human events are always the same. So yeah, there might be new technology, but why you go to the technology is the same exact reason. Human events, human experience, human emotions, the, 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 the birth of a child, the, 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 the getting, you know, leaving your house, getting married, going through suffering, all, all of those things. It's, it's the same thing. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the human experience, human emotion, human events. Nothing changes. Solomon says, every generation brings new actors, but it's the same script. It might be new to us, but it's not new to God. And then the last reason he gives is that there is nothing remembered. Fourth reason why he gives for why there is a lack of purpose in this world is because there is nothing remembered. He says in verse 11, there is no remembrance, everyone say remembrance, of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The fourth and final reason, he says, is that there is no remembrance. So going back to the new thing we just talked about, the reason why you think it's new is because you're kind of dumb. <laughs> Seriously. We're just a really dumb generation who we don't even, forget about reading books, we just read like the titles of articles. Man, I read a title of an article the other day. I'm an expert now. That, that the reason why it's new to us is because we have really bad memory. That's the only reason why it's new. Think about this. Joseph, the biblical character Joseph, when you look at his life in the, new te in the Old Testament, in Genesis, most of the book of Genesis is about Joseph. He has chapters and chapters and chapters dedicated to his life in the book of Genesis. And yet, in Exodus chapter 1, it says, and the new Pharaoh arose, and he did not know who Joseph was. Because that's how generations are. We forget what comes before us. I came across this quote this week from uh, John Lennon. Not John Legend, he's way better, but John Lennon, the other one. Uh, he, he said this back in the day. He said, Christianity, this is his prediction, Christianity will go. This is back in the, the late 60s and early 70s, right? Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue with that. I'm right, and I will be proved right. I'm talking about the Beatles. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. A few years after that, he got shot. But that was his prediction. The Beatles are bigger than Jesus. Christianity will disappear. I heard, uh, I came across this article and it said that in the Grammys a few years ago, um, they, uh, Paul McCartney was performing. And so the person that was kind of like emceeing the whole thing, he turns to the crowd and he goes, who's excited to hear Paul McCartney? And like this segment of young people are like, who's Paul McCartney? Dr. Eugene Peterson one time was in the middle of a lecture and someone raised his hand and said, Dr. Peterson, you may not know this, but Bono quoted you. 
And everyone's like, whoa, Bono. Peterson goes, that's great, but who's Bono? I, every other elder meeting, my elder meeting, my elders are elder. <laughs> like they're elderly, right? They're a little older than me. Um, almost every other elder meeting, we'll be talking about some generational thing. And they're like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, Billy McDay. You remember Billy McDay? And I'm like, who? I'm like, I, I know who Brian McKnight is, not Billy McDay. <laughs> and then they start singing me Billy McDay's music. Like, that's going to like, you know, you know, no, 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 no. They start dancing. I'm like, no, first of all, that's awkward. And second of all, <laughs> you're kind of old. I don't know what to say. You know what I mean? Like, it's real awkward when you're, all the contemporary music you listen to is now the oldie station, right? But that is the cultural moment that we're in. Nothing is remembered. And the only people that aren't willing to admit it is us. And the last thing we learn in this text, we've seen the idol of progress. We've seen the lack of progress. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the advent of progress. Everyone say advent. See, what we've discovered up to this point is that under the sun, apart from God, humanity is left not just without purpose, that was last week, but also without progress. And one of the people in the Old Testament who looked at this outside of Solomon and really meditated on it and pondered the implications of it was Moses. And in Psalm 90, Moses, he's looking at life. He's looking at the brevity and the vanity of life. And he begins by looking at God and God's eternality. The fact that God is not temporary. We are temporary, but God is not temporary. He starts in Psalm 90, uh, verse 1, by saying this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And then he starts bringing up creation. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So he starts this way, right? Vertically looking at God. Then from verse three all the way to about verse 15, he starts to reflect on the brevity and the vanity of life. And he gets to the end of this Psalm and he's so overwhelmed by what he sees in the world under the sun that he ends the Psalm with almost a prayer request. He's, 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 he's calling out to God and he says, in light of all this brevity, in light of all this vanity, he says, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Then he says in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So Moses is looking at the same thing that Solomon is looking at. And as he looks at it, as he looks at the brevity and the vanity of life, he ends with this prayer and he's asking God, God, show us your work. Shower us with your favor. Establish the work of our hands. He's, he's praying. He's, he's calling out to God. He's begging for God to do something about their circumstance, about their situation. And what's interesting is, is that when you look at the rest of Scripture, that's the Old Testament, Psalms, right? But when you look at the rest of Scripture, God, in his own way, in his own time, starts to answer the prayer request that Moses had. He starts to answer this, this cry for help. And what we see is that in the New Testament, in the gospel, God came to deal 
with our actual problem so that we might have actual progress, actual permanence, and arrive at an actual place. The first thing we see in the New Testament is that God came to deal with our actual problem. You know, one of the reasons why I think we aren't finding the right answers is because we're not asking the right questions. And we're not turning to the right cures because we don't have the right diagnosis. The reason why we are turning to progress and to technology is because we think we have a technological problem. We think we have an intellectual problem. But the reality is God knew what our actual problem was. He knew what our actual issue was. If our primary problem was financial, God would have sent a financial advisor. He would have sent Dave Ramsey. If, if our primary problem was medical, God would have sent the doctor. If our primary problem was technological, God would have sent IT support. But our primary problem was spiritual, and so God sent a savior. And that savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. And look at what Jesus says in John 8. I love this. He not only makes very clear his identity, but he also makes very clear his activity. He says in verse 23, He's talking to the religious leaders, and he says to these religious leaders, you are from below, under the sun. I am from above. Everyone say above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. But church, I don't want you to miss what Jesus is doing here. Not only is he, is he identifying himself as the advent of, of progress, not only is he identifying himself as the new thing that is entering into from above, not from below, but then he says, your primary problem is not technological. Your primary problem is not physical. Your primary problem is not financial. Your primary problem is spiritual. And without me, you will die in your sins. He came to answer the question that all of us need to be asking. He says, your primary problem is sin, and I came to deal with that problem. And then here's what it says in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, this is the, the chapter where we get a description of all the things that the Messiah would come to do. And it says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So this is the father crushing the son. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now, the word here, anguish in Hebrew, is the word for toil. The same word that we've been looking at in verse 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Same Hebrew word. So Jesus shows up and he steps into our toil. He goes through our anguish and it says that the father sees it and is satisfied with what the son did. Don't miss that. That, that, that it says in scripture that the angels long to look into the gospel. They are so fascinated with the gospel. And yet the thing that God saw and was satisfied with, the thing that angels long to look into, we have access to and we are bored by he stepped into the anguish. He stepped into the toiling. He stepped into the striving. 
He went through all of it, and God saw the sacrifice, and God was satisfied with what the Son provided. Jesus came to do that for you and for me, and it says in the next section, he did it, he says, because he shall bear their iniquities. The word there, iniquities, is different from the word sin and is different from the word transgression. Sin and transgression happen at the individual level. Iniquity has to do with generational sin. Every generation that comes through on earth, every generation of your family of origin has it own, had, it, had its own iniquity. Every generation brings iniquity. Jesus Christ bore our iniquities. For every generation that has come and gone, he came to deal with our actual problem, church. And praise be to God for that. But listen, he not only came to deal with our actual problem, he came to bring actual progress. Why? Because Jesus brings newness into the same old, same old. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so Jesus, he shows up into all the futility and he makes the futility into utility. And even though nothing is new under the sun, he shows up. And when he shows up, he makes everything new. In the gospel, he shows up and he comes to do a new thing. Isaiah 43. He comes to bring a new covenant, Luke 22. So that we might have a new name, Isaiah 62. That we might have new hearts and sing a new song. And in the New Testament, he, came to bring, he comes to bring new birth so that we become a new creation, so that we might follow his new command in light of our new nature and so that we might have a new community. So into all this same old, same old, into all the monotony, Jesus shows up and makes everything new, church. Come on. Come on. That's my savior. Praise the Lord that in Christ, Futility becomes utility. Meaninglessness becomes meaningful. But, but, but not only did he come to bring actual progress by making everything new, but he also came to bring actual permanence. Now, what do I mean by that? Remember what I said a few minutes ago. I said that because of the way the world works, everything will be forgotten. Nothing will be remembered. And if you're anything like me, that concept of being forgotten is depressing. It's like we're, we're like, you know, footprints on the sand by the, by the ocean. We just disappear. But here's what's beautiful about the gospel. In the gospel, there is actual permanence. There is actual remembrance. Why? Because it says in Isaiah 49, verse 15, it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? That's, that's hard to believe, right? But then it says, even these may forget, and this is God talking, yet I will not forget you. And then just to prove it, he says, behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. So to prove to you that he will not forget you, your name was engraved on the palm of his hands, church. And then in the New Testament, the disciples go to Jesus and they're rejoicing about all the things that they're doing for him. And he says, look, don't rejoice in what you have done for me. Rejoice in what I have done for you. And he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that, your spirit, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And this is why theology matters, church. 
Because the Bible also says in Revelation that before the foundations of the earth, the names that are written in the book of life were already written. So not only will we be remembered, but what my Bible teaches is that my name was written before anything existed and will still be written after everything that existed. Think about how crazy that is, church. It doesn't matter if I'm never, it doesn't, God can take me out tomorrow. It doesn't matter if there's a, a better pastor or a greater pastor that replaces me. It doesn't matter because Jesus remembers me, church. Who cares what you think? Who cares what I think? The God of the universe, he sees me. He remembers me. He hasn't forgotten me. What does Jesus tell the thief? The thief is about to die on the cross, and he says, Lord, remember me when you get to your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today, he says. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is at the house of the Pharisee, and the woman is washing her feet, it's his feet, and preparing his body for burial. And they're like, if he only knew who this woman was, if he only knew her background. And Jesus says, this woman will be remembered for what she did. You know what's so interesting about that? Many commentators have no idea who that woman was, but Jesus did. We might forget her, but Jesus won't. And then lastly, we have been given an actual place. You know, even though utopia is a pipe dream under the sun, utopia is actually a real place. And Jesus is going to lead us there one day. But it's not found horizontally. It is found vertically. And look, how it's, look what it says here. It's my last passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a what? And a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Yet I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from where? Out of heaven. From man? No, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We are not to be like God, we are to be with God. So in the gospel, those eyes that will never be satisfied and those ears that will never be filled, in the gospel, we're giving new eyes and new ears. We're given eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of the gospel. You know, and in Genesis 11, where it says that the people were striving to find significance and security and satisfaction, here's what's interesting. In that same passage, just a next chapter over, you have a guy, just a random guy named Abraham. He was a pagan. He was idolater, an idolater. God shows up, chooses Abraham, gives him significance, Security and satisfaction. But Abraham doesn't get it through grit. He gets it through grace. He gets it through grace. In Genesis 11, he comes down to see. In Genesis 12, he comes down to save. And praise God for that. Amen. We're so excited to be with you today. My name is Olivia. I'm Kristen. And we are really excited to talk through this. We know this is this can be a heavy series, mm -hmm. but um, we're always going to come back to the gospel and remember the truth of uh, what Jesus did for us. Um, so thank you for 
for listening and for sitting with us and growing with us and learning with us. Uh, it's going to be a journey, but we're going to make it through all together. Uh, Danielle is moderating, so please uh, talk to her. Let her know where you're watching from. Let her know who's watching with you, but also send her a prayer request or let her know if you have any other questions. We would love to um, get your questions to our teaching team, uh, even to try to help you further understand and process what we're talking through. Uh, there's a QR code above Kristen's head. So if you'd also love to use that to respond in any way, you can use that throughout our time together. Um, yeah. So right. you ready to jump yeah, in? Yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right, I'm going to start off um, by rereading Ecclesiastes 1, verses 3 through 11. It says, What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has, already, it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Mm. All right, Olivia, what is something new that God taught you in the message today? And do you think this new truth... Um, comforted, convicted, or confronted you? Yeah, I think it was pretty, I, I don't know, it confronted me. Um, it's not necessarily new, but being reminded of just uh, the f fragility of our life, mm -hmm. like, and the vanity that we strive after and how we really try um, to, like, like Will said, serve really like poor, poor gods, yeah. you know, like they may be good gifts, but they're mm -hmm. not great gods. And yeah. so, um, it's just a good reminder to be confronted with the fact that we need to deal with the root issues of idols in our heart. Mm -hmm. And it's not easy to do that, yeah. but, um, it is good to have a conversation and be confronted with mm -hmm. that and talk through it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think same for me, um, confronting, mm -hmm. um, literally exactly what you said yeah <laughs> but also comfort too um mm -hmm. I think like in the last bit of the sermon um just the reminder um that like Jesus like God sent a savior um yeah. to address like sin um was very comforting it's just always a sweet reminder of the gospel mm -hmm. um and so I think I look for satisfaction um in things uh, other than Christ. And so um, just being reminded that God ultimately is my satisfaction. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And that's a, a great reminder. And like, we'll talk through, you know, satisfaction, security, mm -hmm. and significance. But it's all of those things come from Jesus. Yeah. And to, to be reminded of that today at the end, after hearing all this mm -hmm. information, yeah. was extremely comforting. Yeah. Because that's truth. Yeah. Um, and we can rest in that mm -hmm. and knowing that he knows us and loves us and yeah. died for us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so in this service, we talked about the fact, um, I just, that the idol of progress is a very prominent idol in our current day. Yeah. 
why do you think that human progress or advancement mm-hmm. is such a tempting idol for us to worship in our day? Mm-hmm. I, this is a loaded question. <laughs> and there's a part two, but this is just part one. That's <laughs> just part one. Um, you know, why do you think that yeah. is so tempting? Yeah. Um, and we'll kind of get into this too more with just idols. But like I think about... Um, just like temporary satisfaction, mm-hmm. temporary security, yeah. temporary comfort, like all those things, um, human progress or advancement, I think can provide those yeah. things, um, but very temporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it is appealing. Um, yeah. 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 It's it's easy to get down that rabbit hole mm-hmm. of this will make me feel better. Yeah. This will make me feel whole. This will... Mm-hmm make me appear a certain way. People right. will love me for this. Right. Uh, people will like me, mm-hmm. you know, all these things. Yeah. Um, it sends you down this hole and you really do believe mm-hmm. that once you gain that thing, um, and, and, and that can be the progress that's, you know, religious, technological, yeah. social, political, you name it. Yeah. Um, it's not going to satisfy you um, mm-hmm. because it leads to a lot of emptiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, I mean, if we're going to use the the word vanity, like a lot of vanity. Um, and I think it's really easy to get there and we, we would like to act like it's not. Mm -hmm. Um, but one thing can turn into another Mm -hmm. thing and we don't realize how quick we can shift our attention from the Lord to something that is so much lesser. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so then the next part of the question is out of the several different types Mm -hmm. of progress, that were mentioned in the sermon. So mm-hmm. religious, technological, social, political, which ones are you most prone to worship and yeah. why? Um, so I'm someone that I like to like chew on questions for a long time. So this one to me, um, you know, just not having much time to even process, but I think like I thought about um, back in, you know, a few years ago, I think, technological for me would have been one yeah um I think I like love which it kind of sounds silly now but you know then it was very much like an idol in my life of um having the latest and greatest phone um a cool car that I'm driving around um most up-to-date technological things um and I think the question of that he asked is what type of progress am I drawn to Um, but, and why. Mm. And so that why question I think is important, just examining your heart of, I think for me, it was because I found satisfaction in those things. Um, Mm -hmm. and I found like fulfillment, you know, like, I guess status maybe like if I have latest and greatest technological things and like, this is how I come across, um, or this is how people will perceive me. And so, I mean, it's all like a heart issue at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, I think, there's a couple different things that stood out to me, but probably in college and right after college, like that religious progress. Mm-hmm. Um, one, I love to follow some rules. You've probably heard me talk about that <laughs> many times. If you just gave me the rules, I will follow yeah. them. Um, and so in college, I was a biblical studies major. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I got my degree in. And I was with um, a lot of smart people who really just love to debate and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was just like not necessarily having to speak up those things, mm-hmm. but like I felt like it had to be up to par and I had to to share 
all the things that I knew or I felt like I had to like, I don't know, like earn my keep a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, when I stepped into my first job, I felt like I had to prove that really hard. Like Mm. I know what I'm talking about and blah, blah, blah. And the reality is it just led me to a lot more insecurity. Mm. Um, It didn't lead me to a place of being comforted by God's word, but it it led me to a place where God's word became a textbook. Mm. Um, And I have to be really cautious with, with that. I love to study God's word and I find it very fascinating and I love random facts and like kind of nerd out in that way. However, I have to be cautious that I'm not doing that just to show someone else Mm. or just to teach someone else. And I think it was really probably in 2020, God really humbled me in that way and said, Hey, you need to read my word for, to be with me. Mm, Um, this isn't because I think, um, you know, when you get in that habit of just like teaching what you learn to other people, um, as, which is not a bad thing. You should share what you learn with other people, mm-hmm. but when it becomes an idol where yeah. you feel like you have to like have this perfectly well said mm-hmm. thing, um, it, you lose the focus of why you're even reading God's word in the first mm-hmm. place. And so, yeah. um, God really brought me back down and it, it got to the place where I was just at that season of my life, just like reading one verse a day, mm-hmm trying to like really just meet with the Lord. Um, and it was very beneficial, I think, because Mm -hmm. I don't, I feel like he is still killing that people pleaser in me, but that, um, I don't know. He showed me that there was so much idolatry in that. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's interesting how we love to follow things to make it for our gain or to prove to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, but we're all trying to prove or strive or find something else. And our idols are all different. But like, even when he was talking about, you know, satisfaction, security, significance, Mm -hmm. it's like, where are you trying to find peace? Where are you trying to find control? Where are you trying to find approval? Mm -hmm. Um, The reality is we will never find it in those Mm -hmm. things. And it just leads to more and more uh, striving, proving insecurity. Yeah you're not satisfied Mm-mm. ever. No. It's never enough. Um, and so when, when we realize that those things are supposed to be in Jesus, man, how freeing is that? Mm-hmm. That like, I, I'm like, I didn't do anything mm-hmm. to get yeah. all of that. Yeah. Like he did it all for me, yeah. you know? Yeah. Hmm. Um, so in the sermon, we discussed how the gospel gospel completely changes the harsh realities of verses four through 11. And in what specific ways did Christ accomplish what humanity and its own strength could not accomplish? Yeah. Um, when we started talking through, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing's going to be remembered. There's nothing yeah. new. Um, all of our emotions and experiences and events are all going to be the same. It's over and over and over again. Um, nothing is new. Yeah. Uh, I think what we realize when we hear that um, is that our greatest problem is sin. Yeah. And that like God and his grace and his son mm-hmm. to redeem a very broken sinful world but it was because he took our place and so we see that there's a new thing happening there's a new covenant a new name uh he gives us new hearts Mm -hmm. he gives us a new song to sing Mm -hmm. new birth new creation new command new nature new community um 
and it's beautiful because he makes all things mm-hmm. new. Yeah. And there's nothing, I think it shows us the comparison of we can never muster up anything new. We could have never redeemed or saved yeah. all that is broken and lost in this world. Right. Like we could never do that in our own strength. Um, and seeing God in his grace provide something new mm-hmm. is beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so just an encouragement to you guys today um, that he makes all things new yeah. and he gives you a new, new identity and a new name when you know him um, and place your faith in him. And, uh, he's trustworthy in that yes. and he, yeah. he will, um, not ever let you go. And so that verse that, uh, will mention towards the end was Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. And it says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Um, And uh, that is so encouraging. The Lord's never going to forget us. Um, We are, once you're in Christ, you are his. Um, And all the the things that you walk through, the things that you strive for, try to prove like God and his gentleness will remind you that that's not where your identity comes from. And so I just pray for you today that you could receive his grace, that you don't have to have it all figured out. And Mm -hmm. I pray that um, his kindness would meet you if you feel convicted about something that you've been idolizing, because his kindness truly does bring us to repentance. And it's because he loves us so much. And uh, he wants to to work through those things with us and walk through those things with us. And it's important to have community Mm -hmm. to talk through those things with as well. So please let us know how we can support you. Um, We are so grateful uh, to be walking through this all together. I think it helps us all make more sense of things and um, encourage one another to be in God's word and to be listening uh, to his word as well. And so I just pray that throughout the week, maybe you listen to the sermon again, or maybe you're able to discuss this with somebody that you know. Um, But I pray you're able to come back to the gospel and the finished work of Jesus. Um, You have nothing to strive for. Mm -hmm. Um, There's nothing you could ever do um, to, to do what he did, (laughs) but I pray you can rest in his finished work knowing that he's done it and it's finished. Um, yeah. And it's a free gift. Yeah. So thank you so much. Don't forget about the QR code and we're going to see you next Next week. week.